Facebook famously determined that if a new member invited 10 friends within 14 days, they were hooked for life. So they focused religiously on driving the user experience to this key metric. If you apply this product-based approach to B2B sales, then you can identify those users that are ready to talk. And this method is known as the Product Qualified Lead, or PQL. So if you sell in a freemium, open source, or trial model, then the PQL method is critical to give your sales team visibility into who is ready to talk. So talk to your data team, or better yet, partner with Whaler's team of data scientists to develop a PQL model tailored specifically for your business. You'll be empowered by knowing exactly when a user is ready to convert. To see specific examples, go to getwhaler.com forward slash Andy. That's G-E-T-W-H-A-L-R dot com forward slash Andy. And as a bonus, if you sign up to learn more about Whaler and PQLs, then Whaler will send you their optimized two-page master services contract that you can leverage for your own business free of charge. It's time to accelerate. Hi, this is Andy. Welcome to another edition of Frontline Friday with my regular and very special guest, Bridget Gleason. Now, before we get to the show, Bridget and I have a favor to ask of you. We really appreciate it. If you took time right now to leave a review for this show on iTunes, and while you're there, click the button, subscribe to Accelerate, make sure you get Frontline Friday automatically each week. Also, we need to hear from you. More specifically, we need your sales questions. I mean, what can we answer for you? What challenges do you have that we can help you with? So go to accelerate.fm forward slash frontline and enter your question there. Each month, we're going to select one listener's question to be the question of the month. And the winner will receive a $50 Amazon gift card. So remember, go to accelerate.fm forward slash frontline to give us your question and maybe win 50 bucks. So Bridget, how are you today? You know the answer, Andy. That's why I am I fantastic. <laughs> I am great. It is a beautiful Friday here in Boston. Having a great week. Just all good. No complaints. Wow. And good. you're where? I know. Where are you? You're used to that, though. Where are you, Andy, these uh, days? I am in the West Coast office of the Accelerate Media Empire. An- yes. Empire? Yes. Of the Empire? Nice. Yes. Okay. Hard and, to beat? Yeah, it's hard to beat, right? It's... it's uh, a nice sunny morning, the marine layer starting to come in, cool things off, so it's, mm. it's fantastic. Beautiful. Look, I said fantastic. I know. See, you're taking my words. I am. Well, I figure I emulate you. Uh, flattery, flattery. It'll get you everywhere. <laughs> okay, we'll have to think about what, what that is. So, um, we have a special guest, another special guest joining us today. So, yes. why, don't you, why don't you introduce our special guest and sort of say what we're going to talk about. Right. Well, I am thrilled to have uh, a colleague of mine from Logs.io here with us from Tel Aviv, Bianca Lewis. Uh, Bianca was the first sales rep at Logs.io. And this was actually the third startup, Andy, where Bianca was brought in as the first sales rep. And this is what I'd love to talk a little bit more about in this session is God, how each time, I mean, she's not a one hit wonder, you know, done this repeated times, taken a company with really an unproven product, mm-hmm. no brand, right? not sure about product market fit over in Tel Aviv, selling 
to an international market and has been able to help these startup companies get lift and achieve incredible results in uh, their first uh, year or two um, being in business. So, Bianca, welcome to Frontline Friday. Thank you for having me on Frontline Friday. Great to be here, Andy and Bridget. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here. So, that's quite a quite a track record. Is to and so is this like you consider yourself sort of a specialist now at this point of you know hey if you're a new venture and you want to go out and have sort of the pioneering sale done this is what I do. Um, Andy, you know, I really think um, I would call myself an expert, ready to retire from that function. <laughs> and why? <laughs> okay. Um, as, as we're going to talk about a bit later, I think in my experience, it's been a, it's been a case of trial and error and been successful. But yeah, there are so many different elements to making that initial traction successful. It's so much energy and so hard that I think you've got to be completely dedicated to the cause and understand the dynamics before you even attempt it. And done it three times, don't want to do it four times, I'm not sure. Well, so let's get into that, though. Is, is, so what do you think are the keys for, and I've been in this position myself a few times, too, is, but what do you think are the keys that to being you know, no track record, no brand, brand new product, going out and signing you know, substantial deals with, with large companies, with an unproven company and unproven product? Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult one. Uh, there's an old saying, nobody ever got fired for buying IBM. Yeah, well, I, Bridget and I both came of age uh, competing against that every day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and, it's, and it's, it's, it's kind of so true. Um, well, I think, I think the, first, the first key to success was the, was the actual stage that I came on board at these companies. And they all had one thing in common. They all had founders who had dipped their toes into the, into the market before I arrived. Um, and they worked within an ecosystem. So if they were in Tel Aviv, which they were, um, they had friends, they had a network who would try the product. And, mm-hmm. and they, they, they understood how the sale worked first from their friends' feedback, even if they didn't know the complexities of the sales cycles and building a team. They knew very basically what the market fit was, um, how the product had to be positioned. And the same would apply to anybody with a network within a particular ecosystem. So if it's in San Francisco, Boston, Tel Aviv, same principle applies. Then coming on as the first salesperson um, is technically incorrect. You come in on as the second salesperson because the first salesperson is probably the co-founder. Mm-hmm. Um, that initial skeleton is invaluable to, to, to starting the sales cycle. So what, what I initially started to do was just put a little bit of flesh on those bones, um, a little bit smarter about it, define, um, define what, what kind of um, – what kind of pitch we have to go for, what kind of value the product gets, what the initial customers are going to look like outside of this initial network. And the only way to do that is to have a few conversations. Take my network with me, phone people, talk to them, understand, and then you get to realize that there's certain qualities that are invaluable. Number one, we've got no brand. 
we up against competitors that have been in the market for X amount of time. Right. And the key skill to that is to actually be able to turn that around into an advantage. And, and how do you do that? <laughs> uh, well, there's a lot of cliches. People sell to people. Um, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to go into cliches. Well, but, I'm just, but, but the cliches are cliches for a reason because they're grounded in experience. Yeah, exactly. So essentially what you need to do is you need to get a really good grip on the technology, on the market fit, on the value. Then when you get into an intelligent kind of a conversation, recognizing the person you're talking to has probably been in the space for many years. They probably know um, what they're looking for before you even hop on a phone call. And then because you're showing an understanding and a consultative approach and you're talking to them as a, as a human being, it's very simple to just say to them, well, I know that, uh, that, that you can go with one of the bigger players in log analytics. Uh, there's a couple of very big companies. Um, I can offer an alternative. I think what we can offer is the chance to be part of an exciting new approach which you can actually be a part of and you can shape the solution at this stage of the product development into something that can really work for your company. And of course, the other pricing advantages, the other support and backup advantages because we don't have many clients and then success breeds success. After you get some good traction from the first few customers, on the next few calls, you can play off that. Mm -hmm. So you can, I say that, you know, coming from coming from nothing, we've uh, we've had uh, forty new companies sign up in the last couple of weeks, and um, the reason they have is X, Y, and Z. So, well, and I'll let me interrupt just for a second because I, as an observer coming in after Bianca had had this traction, part of what I saw, and Andy, you and I've seen as well before we've either been in the situation, but we've also been in early stage companies is I think this ability uh, that Bianca definitely has proven that she has of taking it, it's pattern recognition. So she was able to see the first sales rep. I think you're right. Bianca is really the, the co-founder or the founder of co-founders needs to be and needs to be yes. and being able to see, okay, what are the common threads through there being able to extract, be able to extract that make some sense of it. The co-founders are not often able to do that. They go after their network, but then that, that first non-founder salesperson has to then take it and say, okay, pattern recognize, find out what's the lowest hanging fruit and then be able to just sort of ring by ring go like first it's the initial core network. Then you go to friends of friends. Then you go to colleagues of those people and sort of building out until you have enough credibility that you can go out and say, okay, I've got these three use cases like yours. And you just continue to build out the network. And I think that's one of the things that Bianca was very, very good at is what is this pattern recognition and then moving beyond sort of that initial group of people who are the friendlies of the founders and just continuing to build those relationships um, just beyond it. It's hard to do. Not everybody's, not everybody's able to do that. 
No, they're not. And I think that one of the key things that, that Bianca said, at least to, to my hearing and to my experience, is, is this idea of being part of a group that's shaping what the ultimate experience is going to be. Mm. And, you know, it's not for every company that you're going to talk to. It's, yeah, but no, I don't have time. Give me something proven, right? But you know, increasingly, and in, in this environment that we're working with, you know, the rapid evolution of technology and so on, there are more people, I think, out there that are prepared to say, "Yeah, there's a little bit of risk with this, but at the end of the day, we're going to get something much more close to what we need to, to fill, you know, to solve our problem than if we went with one of the established solutions." And so I think having that participation, right, getting people to enroll yeah. in this 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 mission, this journey, you know, we're going to shape this together and and make this really great. I think it's it's a great approach. And Andy, Andy, I think I think you're right as well. And I also think that the way that you sell at the beginning is very different from the way you sell after you got the initial traction. For example, setting an annual contract after you started to sell a product for two weeks or a service for two weeks um, is almost impossible because they're <laughs> taking a risk just by signing up. Sure. So, your first, so say your first sign-ups are inevitably low risk for them. Well, what have you got to lose by trying us for a month? Exactly. Um, exactly. So, Yes, so the deal structures at the beginning are also different as they develop. Um, they're the same as the initial teams. After you get the initial traction and you recruit your your second, third, fourth sales rep, although I would suggest that any founders don't recruit one sales rep. I think it's always good to have a, a baseline, so you want to recruit at least two. And... Um, when you start to, to recruit, it's the same thing. At the beginning, the first teams um, that I got to, to, to work at Logs.io were, you, you, got to, you can't get the best sales reps in the world with the track record of success over, over six years and million-dollar quotas. So what you essentially have to do is hire on talent. And even that, I kind of always looked – for the dynamic of the first two, three of the team, what were their powers? Where were they strong? So I got one person who was learning very quickly technically. He's still with us, and he's still overachieving quota. I got another person who built relationships very quickly, and another person who um, got through a good workload. Things with quality. You didn't focus on one power as you talked about you you had several yeah, I, that were okay is okay if they were different you know some people more tech savvy some people more relationship savvy and so on mm-hmm. and that was okay well i think i think at the early stages the reason that that worked is we didn't have the volume of needs coming into the system um, or the outbound machine built up yet that it allowed be the luxury to pick and choose who should be working on what um, realization number two was that the initial sales reps that you hire, if you're going into a position with an ego to lead a team, um, it's not going to work because in their therapy, and Bridget will verify this as well, any semi-complicated, semi-large deal, mm-hmm. essentially you have to be working it yourself with the team. 
simply because it's not at the maturity that they could that they could do that themselves. And we all know player coaches don't work, and it's very difficult to empower a team to do that. The initial stages, it's essential you do that. It's also essential that you can work 20-hour days. Yeah, and I would say, again, as an objective person who came into the situation, specifically at Logs.io, and I, I get the question a lot from technical co-founders about this first, who should be their first non-co-founder salesperson? What, are, what does that person look like? And I think what Bianca is sort of alluding to here, so uh, Bianca was way overqualified to sell any initial deal. So when when the product is uh, more proven and the company moves moves further along, you don't need somebody with Bianca's level of experience to kind of navigate to navigate the sales cycle. But early on, it was really helpful to have somebody that was very overqualified in Bianca um, and have a team of people that she was working with and empowering and enabling and training as they were going along to be able to take the sales, um, take the sales forward. But it required her hands-on involvement pretty much in all of them because things were, there was still so much to be figured out. So she relieved some of the pressure from the co-founders and she took that on, but she also had to be very actively hands-on involved in, and Bianca, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I would say more than 90% of the deals uh, you were very actively involved with. Yeah, and I think I think it's, it's extremely necessary because at that stage of a company, it's very difficult to pick and choose your talent. So you hire on a specific skill and you just got to fill in the gaps yourself. Yeah, I mean, there's there's obviously risk on, on any hires, right? When you bring them in, is, mm. is, yeah, are they fit? Can they handle what you have and i think but i think to me sort of listening to you you guys describe the situation i think for me the lesson for you know people are are listening whether you're an entrepreneur or a startup founder or whatever is that that there's this this tendency to make your first sales hire your vp of sales and right that's oftentimes the wrong move, right? Because mm-hmm. you want to hire somebody like Bianca, somebody senior, somebody that can do the pioneering sales and help start grow the capabilities of the team that, that is really much more oriented towards achievement rather than building out an infrastructure. Yeah, and it's a tough, I, I would agree. I think it's a, it's a tough one because what's also important in that role, and maybe Bianca's a bit unusual in her ability to do it, because I think you're right in the criteria, is then being able to go and help put in place some of that infrastructure and some of the processes and get the company to a place where they can hire a VP of sales or they can bring in a team like that, that individual contributor. I've gone into situations where you have an individual contributor that can't get it to that next step. Like all they do is they have all the know-how and it's only them where I think Bianca was able to not only 
be that pioneering salesperson, very senior, but also start to empower, train, and put in some of these processes to allow the company to go to that next stage. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it's I think it's a great model again for people that are are listening and and in that position is yeah to be really thoughtful and deliberate because there are a lot of pressures coming from different uh, different sources, if you will, uh, with a lot of opinions about okay, who should you hire? As your first sales hire, and you know, it could be mm. could be an advisor or an investor who has a friend that needs a job, <laughs> or it could be, and that happens, as you know, Bridget, it happens a lot, right? Yes. Um, or yeah, you know, could be a VP, whatever. And I think you know, this is really a sensible model. Is what you're saying is, yeah, how do I go out and get these reference customers, initial reference customers? How do I that we can scale and make successful that maybe have you know, above above normal level of complexity to them, so they take some somebody with the experience at that level to be able to close. And, and you know, Andy, I've seen so many mistakes being made um, of of founders of of startup companies, um, and some of the more common mistakes in these first hires have been things like exactly what you said. Um, your first sales hire, we're going to call our VP sales, and. The, the biggest red flag for me on that one is, well, why has this person got such a big ego that they have to be called VP sales with no team under them? <laughs> okay. So probably probably they're on hire. Well, we, we, could, next, we could spend an hour talking about that, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, exactly. The, the, next, the next big mistake that I've seen is uh, co-founders decide to go into sales without testing the market themselves and understanding that. Fails every time. Mm-hmm. The, the, the next big one is when they can have a great Series A funding round and they decide, let's start selling our product and let's get our first uh, salesperson in. And they get somebody who's worked at Oracle, IBM, EMC, etc. Um, and why is this not working? They've got super experience in selling great enterprise software without realizing that you're in a company that hasn't sold anything ever. Right, it's right. The wrong, yeah, completely the wrong kind of hires. Your, your profile should really be a person who's experienced enough and flexible enough to leave the ego at the door and to work incredibly difficult hours and grow with the company and at that stage the company's evolving and growing each and every day and over the last decade that's what i've loved doing because it's developed me so much as a person to grow in that evolved environment if the person has is too rigid automatic fail yeah no i I agree i agree No, I was going to say I would, I would, I would agree to that. Also, it sort of made me laugh when I was listening to uh, Bianca talking about titles. I think when I started, I don't. I think Bianca, maybe her title. I think we recently changed it, but I think it was sales. Like I think it just said sales. There was no, there was no title, and we laugh now because sometimes people on the team will bring her in as. Uh, for security, they'll bring her in for negotiation, like wherever they need somebody. Bianca is such a pinch hitter that she can help 
on so many different levels, whether it's product, whether it's doing a demo, whether it's coming in to review security, whether it's looking at legal documents. She's got such broad knowledge about the company um, and has the trust of the founders also. So it just has become a just a more and more valuable uh, part of the uh, company's ecosystem and has not worried about what the title has been. Just put me in where you need me and let's keep let's just keep growing. And, you know, we're still pretty early, but have just had great traction and wouldn't have been there without that first hire, I think is so critical and so hard to get, to get right. So I just thought Bianca was, you know, me meeting her and this being her third one where she's done it. uh, Just so much, so much to learn from. Well, I think that that you're really talking about a cultural thing within a company, and I think that's that's the thing that's really important is is that is I think too often we're seeing with founders is again maybe it's due to their advisors, their board, whatever, but but they view their organization somewhat as a hierarchy and in a traditional sense, and which is sort of unfortunate because you know, I've seen examples of companies that uh, less so on the sales side, but certainly in other other uh, parts. Of, like one company I work for. Huge, you know, hundreds and hundreds of engineers and developing development department, but they all carried the same title. But mm. no one was under any illusions about who was senior to whom, right? Because right. it was based on the work they had done. And so, as an organization, they came together for projects. And then after the projects were done, they broke up and people got assigned to different projects. But yeah, they carried the same title. But when these projects came together, you knew who was going to be the project manager. Yeah, and yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I found, as Bridget said, when she came, my title was sales. Um, why was it sales? Because titles in an early, early stage startup, we're still an early stage startup, but at the initial stages, I found incredibly restrictive. How can a VP of sales get on a call with a rep to talk about a product? Um, how it, it gave me flexibility to be able to add value into those initial calls, into that initial team, but just mm-hmm. not have a title. Yeah. And I could, I could tell them on the phone um, exactly what I'm doing without having them look at my LinkedIn and say, well, why is this person talking to me? Yeah. Well, what's yeah, because they see if you're title, they're saying, okay, they're trying to close the deal, right? They brought the exactly. manager in because they're trying to close the deal. And then, yeah, suddenly you get a different response from the person you're speaking with. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I, my philosophy is to be honest about that. And when I talk to them, I, I tell them who I am. I don't pretend to be everything or what I'm not, but I tell them the context of why I'm on the call as openly and honestly as, as I possibly can. I just, I just find titles too early on in a company, very restrictive and very connected to the salesperson's ego yes. and not the company's goals. Yeah, and I think Bridget, yeah, you'd find this to be the case as well, as we all have. They've grown sales organizations and in startups. Is that, uh, yeah, when people have a title associated with with their work, suddenly there's things they won't do. Yeah, right? Yeah. That's, that's not my job. It's like, eh, okay, <laughs> that's not really that's not really the understanding we have. But well, hey, look at my title, right? Yeah, Um, yeah, exactly. And the next piece of advice that you alluded to earlier were co-founders who are from a very technical developer background. To gain their trust, 
your initial salesperson has to show an aptitude to understanding the product, understanding the technology, understanding how this is going to fit into companies. If you can demonstrate that to your co-founders, that's how you build good teams. A person who can just go through sales numbers is never going to bond with a technical co-founder. It's as simple as that. Great point. Well, I think that's true. I think there's another facet to that, though, too, is is that early sales hire has to know when they need help and and ask for it. And I think that's you know, another issue you sometimes see is people come in and they think, well, yeah, I was hired. I'm um, sort of the the quote-unquote star, and I should be able to handle this on my own. And yeah, I've seen it more times than not that you know, that person gets in trouble because they, they wouldn't ask for help. And so, yeah, I think technical co-founders, even if they don't, working with the first salesperson or two, even if they don't have necessarily all the technical smarts, if they're smart enough to know, this is where I need the help, let's get it, that goes a long way. Exactly. I think of the amount of of founders that have actually contacted me over the years and they've said, I can't understand why I can't make those initial sales because I've got the pitch perfectly. I know exactly what I've got, but nobody's buying. So I said, well, it's great that you got the first 5% figured out. Exactly. Like that's just so true. And and a topic that I guess we could go on for hours, which unfortunately I can't today. But that for the first year, that initial traction is is for me anyway. It's not. It's about understanding the process and getting things in place. But really, the only focus that I had in those initial months, only focus getting new labels, new brands, and closing dollar amounts. Right. Um, the scalability and repeatability was completely secondary to me because that takes a tremendous amount of energy to do right. Exactly. And all my energy was focused on getting the company that initial traction, and that focus is so important. And when Bridget came on board and – became our VP of sales, which in my career, I've got to tell you, not because Bridget is here, was one of the best things that ever happened to me in terms of my career. A question is, what do you do with this first salesperson? <laughs> and you, something that Bridget has really helped me with as well. Well, and I would say you continue to empower that person. And now, Bianca, I know I need to empower you to go get on your plane to go to <laughs> Tel Aviv or you will miss it. Like I am looking at the clock saying, we've got to wrap this All right, up. We're going to wrap it up then. So, Bianca, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Andy. And thank you, Bridget. And uh, it's been a real, real privilege chatting. Well, great. Well, and we'll, do it, we'll do it again. But uh, yeah, as Bridget said, go catch your plane. Okay, bye-bye. All right, bye. And friends, and thank you for joining us again for this episode. Uh, what did we decide it was, Bridget? Number 98? 98. 98. 98. 98th episode of Frontline Fridays. and counting. And counting, exactly. So, onward and upward. So again, thank you very much for joining us, Bridget. Thank you, as always. As always. All right, we'll talk to everyone next week. Have a great one. 